0: Top of the day to you folks, thank you for listening in. My name is John Bensalia, welcome back to my Perpetual Outsider channel. Today we're going to be looking at The Way Back, which is the first episode of Blake Seven. Just a quick reminder that I'm uh, also on Patreon, which you can find at www.patreon.com forward slash John Bensalia. That's John with an H and Bensalia with a -A -A. B-E-N-S-A-L-H-I-A. I'll be uploading various goodies on there. You can all, you can actually catch the first couple of episodes of a Christopher Eccleston series, uh, Rose and The End of the World. And um, all being well, I'll be uploading The Unquiet Dead very soon, as well as much more on the way, I hope. Anyway, without further ado, let's get on and go back to uh, early 1978 with the way back. Counting us down in five, four, three, two, one. Yes, here we go. I hope this DVD works, actually, because it's got a slight crack in the middle, because the packaging for the DVD is so rubbish Um, that whenever I try and get a DVD out, it's always kind of wedged in. So it it always ends up cracking the middle, but it's playing so far with this wonderful Dudley Simpson music. It's kind of part Mars from the, uh, the Planet Suite by Holst and part music by John Miles. And those wonderful titles, "The Way Back" by Terry Nation, opening on this very kind of dystopian future with a with a spy camera. It looks like it was filmed at a local shopping mall. Good set design, actually. It's very clever because they they reuse the same set over and over again but with ve- very clever different camera angles and very clever set redressing, if you like. Very good. So, what can I tell you about Blake 7? It's kind of like the angry younger brother of Doctor Who, I would guess. It's it's pretty much made by the same people who made Doctor Who. You've got the producer, David Maloney. He directed so many Doctor Who classics, like Genesis of the Daleks and The Deadly Assassin. And it's direct. It was written, of course, by Terry Nation, created by Terry Nation, who also created the Daleks uh, and the Kraals and the Vords. And it's directed by Michael E. Bryant. Uh, it, it goes on. It goes on. There are so many, you know, so many similar Doctor Who connections. Um, but it's it's a curious one because um, it, it kind of looks like, you know, sort of mid to late 70s Doctor Who but tonally it's it's a lot darker it is a lot darker in tone and it's also a um a, a series in which blake and his friends never really win the day they are always you know they always kind of run up against the federation and it's kind of like the federation tends to have the last laugh especially when we get to the uh, the, la- the last episode which um Actually, it's not the Federation that has the last laugh. It's uh, it's just a classic misunderstanding. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm not going to be talking about that. Let's talk about the way back with um, lots of characters introduced. Gareth Thomas, of course, um, absolutely marvellous as Blake. Yeah, he he, he does he does make a great you know kind of central figure because on account of his voice, he's got that great kind of authority that sort of slight slight Welsh uh, tinge baritone which uh, which works brilliantly I think. Even though he does get the raw deal, I think really he does tend to lose out to uh, Paul Darrow as Avon, who, who I think really steals the show from him. Um, we've got various other characters here. We've got Gillian is it Gillian Bailey I think? Gillian Bailey is Rivella went on to become a lecturer at uh, the university that I used to go to, which is Royal Holloway. She didn't, she didn't lecture me, by the way. Uh, there's Alan Butler in the background, who a Wing Chiang fans will know better as Buller. Except without the Cockney accent here, he's playing Ritchie. And there's Jeremy Wilkins skulking and lurking in the background who mastered the art of the uh, the sneer in Revenge of the Cybermen as Kelvin, also directed by Michael E. Bryant. The Way Back is quite a curious one, because it's kind of, if, if all of Blake 7, if all 52 episodes were turned into a book, this would be the prologue. Because it, it doesn't feature many of the familiar Blakes seven items that we know. it doesn't feature Avon, it doesn't feature the Liberator. it doesn't, it only features two of Blake's crew. Um, it, there's so many things that are absent. This is kind of like a very kind of grim prologue as to you know as to who Blake is, who he was, what he's all about, what his mission is, that sort of thing. So this is a this is setting the stall for what's to come. It's a good mix, actually. Good, uh, good mix of a what I think is a glass painting of the dome and the uh, and the live action filming. When did I first come across Blake's? Well, I vaguely remember bits of it when I was uh, when I was a little boy, um, and I was about three and a half years old, I think, when the first series went out coming up to that and all i remember of it was the interior of a liberator which i thought was like a magic egg because the the screen would appear from nowhere and it would go and it would come up with this you know this oval shaped picture of uh you know a planet or the solar system or space or whatever or the action you know whatever action was going on so and that, that, was my first, uh, that was my first memory, as uh, Blake is about to go on about. What about my memory? <laughs> oh, he's going to say it in a minute. What about my memory? What about my memory? Very Welsh. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, that, that, was, um, that was kind of like my first memory of Blake Seven. But I don't, I, I don't think I started watching it. And of the years, I always thought it was Rescue, because I vividly remember watching Rescue um, in 1981. But I've actually got a feeling that I caught the repeat of Terminal, which was a couple of months before, because they repeated it in 1981, July 1981. And I do have vague memories of it, which are starting to kind of bob back into my consciousness. A little bit like Blake's memories are starting to bob back into his subconsciousness. So that was, you know, I'm, I I remember watching the last series as a kid and really enjoying it, and uh, you know, was was a gasp when. Uh, no, I'm I'm not going to get ahead of myself. No, in, in case uh, in case you haven't seen that last episode, but, uh, yes, I remember being a at the final episode, which we'll talk about if I ever reach there. I don't know. Um, but I, the when the videos came out in 1991. I was always tempted to get them because they they came out in January nineteen ninety one. They started releasing them on a monthly basis. They previously released uh, some compilation videos, including this one. They kind of butcher all the episodes and kind of like stick them together as compilations. But they didn't get around to releasing the complete episodes until January nineteen ninety one. Some you know some great funky episode art actually on the on the covers. You know they they were great. But of course, when you you know when you're 16 or 17, um, and you, d- you don't have any money, it was either saving up the pocket money and the um, the paper round job. It was either Doctor Who videos or Blake send videos. So unfortunately, it was the Doctor Who videos that won. And you know, I, I would just look at the Blake Sim videos on the shelf and think, oh, I, I would love to get those one day. But I actually didn't. I didn't get to see um, the first series properly until 2000 because BBC Two did a repeat season in uh, I think it, I think it was about February, and of course the BBC you know the BBC only repeated the one season. I, I had hoped they were going to repeat all of it, but uh, of course ratings you know they just couldn't be asked and gave up after the first season, which I thought was a real shame. Um, and then I. Yeah, two thousand and three. Yeah, they, they started releasing those great big clunky box set videos. They would package all of them into really clumsily into this big box, and, uh, and that's when I really started to probably remember Blake Seven. But I, I was, I really, I really enjoyed it, and um, you know, still enjoy it to this day. The DVD is still holding up, actually, amazingly. As uh, as Blake talks to Brand Foster, I should really talk about the episode itself. Yeah, it's Bram Foster remembering or explaining to Blake about who he was because uh, his memory's been wiped. And the director, Michael E. Bryan, he's got a lot of exposition to work with. He's got a lot of dialogue. But he pulls up a really clever trick here and he films it uh, in a very unusual style. He has close-ups of mouths and eyes. He has a close-up of Bram Foster's mouth talking you've got a close-up of Blake's eye, as he remembers, and this this rather disturbing memory of his as he's put into this awful, oh, those awful flickering lights like you get in a, some tacky nightclub, you know, with a disco, you know, they're playing some nap disco track, you know, no, some dance track. Yeah, it wouldn't be disco, would it? No, it'd be dance. you know, like, doo-gee, doo-gee, doo like, they t- like they're kicking a tin can in a, a defective uh, tin can in a, Defective tin can, no, um like the kicking a tin can in a amusement arcade, that sort of thing, and he films it really well. he's very fun of kind of fast cuts, you know, cutting all the time, you know, very well shot, and um yeah, Michael e. Bryant, I think is probably the the unsung hero of season One because he directs quite a few and he he directs them. Superbly, I think. I, th- I think he's easily on a par with Douglas Canfield who also does sterling work on the of uh, duel episode. Um, this is Robert Beattie who was in the Tenth Planet. He was he was Cutler. Tenth Planet was uh, William Hartnell's last season, uh, last episode, and he doesn't get a great deal to do. I mean, he's he, he's he's just there to act as the the conduit for Blake's memories, really. It's what you call a slow burner episode. It, it 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 takes its time. It doesn't rush to make the point. It, you know, it's it's kind of setting up the mystery. You know, quite gradually. And by today's standards, we're probably be a little bit too slow and talky for some. But pro- having said that, actually, reading the responses on Twitter because it was repeated on the now sadly defunct Forces TV channel, I can't believe they've got rid of that. The uh, the reaction was generally very positive. A lot of people were very happy to see it back and were watching it for the first time. And I think it's actually encouraged a few kind of like rewatches because there's various uh, commentaries on YouTube and, uh, and other podcasts as well, which are discovering and for the first time, which is which is marvellous, I think. It's wonderful that, they're, that this classic archive TV from the 70s is being discovered by a whole new audience. Of course, uh, this is all a dupe, isn't it? Very grim location filming. And interestingly, no incidental music, apart from... Uh, the, the only incidental music we've had so far is the kind of the Muzak, which was uh, being beamed over the... over the... Uh, over the loudspeakers in the, in the main dome. And that doesn't really kind of constitute incidental music in its own right, but I, th- I think it actually works quite well without um, music layering all over the action. Like they w- like they would today, you know, you'd be having some, you know, some big farting orchestra galumphing its way over the action as the as the guards move in. Yeah, those those guards are, you know, they're, they're quite. They're, they're quite effective, you know. They, you know these sort of like grim reapers, you know, gr- suited grim reapers of death. They're, you know, very eye-catching. It's it's got a lot of memorable images in this one because, of course, Blake Seven didn't really have much of a budget to work with. You know, it was lit- literally begs, begging, stealing, and borrowing from where from wherever it could. But the re- but I, I suppose because of that, you are kind of like forced to be a bit more creative and come up with a with ways of actually using that money the best you can to come up with some, yeah, some really quite striking images. And, of course, you know, the massacre coming up is uh, is, is very memorable and uh, quite green for the time slot. I've got to say, um, this was actually broadcast, I think, either at 10 to 7 or 5 to 7 on a Monday. And you think, how the hell do they get away with it? You know, it's like, yeah, yeah, there we go. You've got, you know, you've got a massacre. You've got very adult themes in this. Um, some very dark overtones. These days, if you were putting it out, it would probably, it probably wouldn't be broadcast until nine o'clock, I would guess. You know, so even Ravella and Richie have now bit in the dust in the massacre. Everybody's being slaughtered there. And I, I, I don't know if Mary Whitehouse was um, getting a false teeth in a twist. I suspect she probably was. Um but yeah, I mean stuff like that wouldn't, wouldn't be allowed now, though. You know, it's that's quite grim, you know. You've got um Fos you know, Foster lying there, eyes wide, you know, eyes wide open in death, you know, he's got blood coming out of his mouth and uh, everybody lying there dead. It's um yeah. These days, you know, you probably um you, you, you wouldn't get it broadcast until nine PM. Even, in, even more incredibly, the uh, the repeats in 2000 went out on, you know, sort of like a two o'clock on a Saturday, I think. Kids would be watching it, but, you know, there you go. A bit of music from Dudley, and a great zoom zoom out there. Oh, there's the machine from the Green Death. That was uh, that was in the Green Death, that was, I recognised that. Boss's turntable, oh, zoom in there. I love a good old zoom in and zoom out there. And he's remembering now, of course, Blake. But yeah, these days, um, it's what do you, what do you get on on weekdays? You know, you just get the boring old One Show, which is I suppose I suppose it's the replacement, you know, the equivalent of Nationwide, which is what we had back then in the seventies. Um, except the One Show is just even more banal and mind-numbingly boring than uh, the Nationwide was, I think. This is good. I, I really like the way Michael E. Bryant does this strange crossfade between Blake and is it doctor Haven? I think? Who seems to be about eight foot tall. He's, he's like about two foot taller than the, the other characters. But yeah, Michael E. Bryant is doing this really clever crossfading between the two which which nicely sums up Blake's um he's he's clearly losing his grip on reality. You know, he's he's questioning what's real and what isn't and you know, of course Haven is kind of he's gaslighting him with all this uh, with all this COD psychology. And Gareth Thomas does very well. He's you know, he's he's really steaming the episode with with a man who's who's meant mentally broken. I mean it's uh, it's a shame it's never really kind of dwelt on, you know. After this, he's kind of like, he's kind of like back to normal, or as normal as he can be, you know. When when he get when he gets on board the for uh, London, you know, he, he becomes you know sort of the moral crusader, I think. But it's not really all these experiences which would be really traumatic. They're not really kind of dwelt upon as much. But you know, this is good. Great handheld camera there. He can't remember. Yeah, that, that's good. That's good. The echoing voice as well. Remember, remember, remember Great stuff. Very very disorientating, but it, it just it just works so well, I think. So we got some new characters um settling down a very comfy. Cheers. They're like, they're like they're on the, you know they're like they're going to appear on the wogan chat show or something or parkinson you know daytime tv with uh oh what's his, yeah daytime tv with ben gleed and i guess tonight are oh, dr havard and outer morag outer Altamora, what a name I mean, you could you could sing that to the theme tune of Casey Morag, Rag, the CBBS, you know, Out a more rag is not bad. Out a more rag is a nasty piece of work. Yeah, she's played by Susan Field and looks like a mad old dinner lady, actually, in that in that kind of um, those tabards that they used to wear. She she looks like she's going to start. She's going to come in with a tea, with a tea trolley bearing, you know, shepherd's pie and cheese pie and uh, a tapioca or something. But don't be fooled by that, you know, that kindly, that kindly uh, external appearance, because she's a real nasty piece of work, actually. She's a she's a right Rockweiler, isn't she? You know, she's a, the way she comes up with this horrible, horrible scenario, this plan to discredit Blake. And Glynn there of course, played by Robert James, who was Lesterson in Doctor Who Paradox Daleks, I will come back in the Masked Man Dragora with very bouffant hair as the High Priest, which I don't think he enjoyed that much as Lesterson. He's he's good in this, of course. He he uh, I don't know if he's a uh, if he's a closet time lord because he he changes his face for uh, another episode in the future voice from the past, and he becomes. Richard Bebb, you know, presumably he wasn't uh, available, so they just had to recast. Uh, And this this guy is also in it twice. Oh, what's his name? What's his name? Oh, I forget his name. Yeah, tell Varon. Yeah, tell Varon. What is the actor's name? It'll come to me, but um, yeah. P- apparently, he was in um, he was in an episode of Angel. Actually, I think he went to um, he went to America and did some work there. But he also comes back in uh, in Gambit. Michael Halsey. That's it. That's it. Michael Halsey. That that's the one. But he's he's good in this. He's uh, he's good as the uh, um, Venus lawyer. Set redressed again. <laughs> do they get to do that voice? <laughs> it's very kind of it sounds like they hired Janet Brown or somebody to do like a Thatcher voice over. Security clouds! Maybe it's the mad old woman who runs uh, runs around shrieking later on, which we'll get to. Oh, he's got one of those old leather satchels. It's it's very very seventies. It looks like he's on his way to school. So Tel Varon is, he's, he's the lawyer who's been assigned to, um, uh, represent Blake for these appalling made up crimes, these kind of tree esque crimes, which, are oh, horrible. I'm, I'm, ama- I'm amazed that this was, uh, this was broadcast you know at such an early times because it's it's so it's so grim and it's uh, really dark in its uh, in its themes. It's oh it's horrible. Really horrible. But it just shows you it just shows you how ruthless the Federation is. You know, if they were going to any lengths to deal with any dissenters in their rags, you know, to the point of discrediting them and completely ruining their reputation. Um, and framing them for such, you know, appalling crimes, you know, which of course are not true. But yeah, there is. It's, I suppose, you know, we've still got this real kind of horrible. A lot of the themes being explored in, you know, Blake Seven, not just the way back, but generally, you know, the way, you know, like mind control and, um, you know, the overbearing, total, totalitarian. Um, you know, regime and, you know, this awful constant, you know, desperate uh, bid to cling to power, you know, like the Federation does which is kind of, you know, quite a, quite relevant today because you've got this awful government who would do it would stop at nothing to, you know, just cling to the power you know, at any cost and of course you've got, um, you know, this awful it's, this, you know, this, this awful uh, media this right-wing media that controls and dominates everything pretty much you know this awful murdoch empire which you know just sort of comes up with made-up stories and fabrications and twists the truth mind control subtle mind control it's it's still very relevant today if i've explained that badly then uh yes well you know what to expect by now you just get a lot of garbled uh but anyway you know know what i mean it's a it, it's still very relevant, I think, in today's society, I think. So we're, we're into the trial now. <clears throat> and um has got his best uh, robes on, which still looks like those uh, those tabbers that you used to wear at school. He looks like he's going to be uh, picked for a side of uh, football. OK, Tel Varen, you could be goalkeeper. Blake, you could be sent forward. It's, it's quite easy to laugh at some of the, you know, the fashions and the and the low budget. But I think it actually stands up a lot better than uh, than you might, than its reputation suggests. There's a, there used to be a lot of these uh, these kind of like uh, media criticisms on TV. You know, you get like top. Top one hundred most embarrassing moments in sci-fi, that sort of thing on channel four. And Blake Seven would inevitably be on there because, you know, they joke about the wobbly sets. Uh, you know, the what they thought was bad acting. I don't I don't think it's bad acting at all. I don't think there's there's only one death performance in this, which we're gonna to get to in a minute. Um but overall, I I I think it's it's very easy to criticise Blake Seven, I think. Um, and I, I, I don't think that's fair because I think it stands up actually very well. But of course, you had all these trendy media hacks, you know, that always invite, you know, sort of like of, uh, Paul Ross and uh, somebody from Big Brother on there to laugh and joke about, you know, how crap Lake Seven was, which is uh, just, just nap, really, isn't it? Mm, tell Varen, only just realizing the. The lengths that the federation will go to. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is the ba- this is the only bit of poor acting that doesn't work. That guy there. <laughs> By the order of the terror Federation, uh, yes, yes. blah blah blah. Here comes Margaret Job from Governance State. Oh, all oh, wise peers. No. That guy. What is what is that all about? I think he's called Rodney Figaro or something. Course, for will submissions. He sounds a bit like David Mitchell, actually. who's also got that kind of yeah, that posh upper class tweet annoying Porsche upper class tweet voice. Maybe it's his dad or something. I don't know. Yeah, Margaret John. Yeah, she's good in this. Actually, she was in um... yeah, of course, Gavin and Stacey. Very different character she's playing here, which uh, which she plays well. She, it's probably more along the lines of when she appeared in fury Reef in the Deep as uh, Megan Jones. Said, Very no-nonsense and uh, straight to the point. And she was also in uh, The Idiot's Lantern, which she just walks around with that face most of the time. Yeah, she's good. Yeah. Unlike poor old Rodney. Yeah, I think... Um, I think the kind of a drabness of, of I think it's actually this episode is actually where lack of budget actually kind of works in its favor because you've got this very kind of stark utilitarian kind of, um, environment, this hot, you know, this real kind of cheap as chips world, you know, it's very kind of run down and stark and everybody's got to put up with the, you know, the very kind of basic level of life, I think, including what looks like, um, two transparent footballs to represent the uh justice machines which are kind of like the Megara in the stones of blood except they're well i suppose you've got the flashing lights there yeah oh that look that morag gives blake is just ugh. if ever there was a boo hiss moment it would be that because she looks so smug yeah susan field i don't know much about the only time i've seen her is in an episode of no she's in um She's in two crime dramas that I've seen. She was in Poirot, I think she played a cook, and she was in an episode of Midsummer Murders and she got chucked off a cliff. Beyond that, I don't know much about her. Yeah, unfortunately, poor old Blake's been stitched up like a kipper by the Federation. Like many of the episodes in this first season, it's kind of like a two-part into one. You've kind of got one main plot strand in the first part and then another in the second. So we're kind of like at the half point here. So the the first part of this has been establishing Blake, who he is, his background. And the second part is going to be more of kind of like a race against time to actually free Blake and actually get him absolved of the crimes. Um, Terry Nation does this a lot In uh, in this season As we'll go along and see It's kind of like two parts rolled into one How stupid is uh, Jeremy Wilkins' character Oh he's called Tarrant isn't it I've just remembered he's called Tarrant um, he, he, Yeah for some reason He just suddenly shows up at the trial And just to sort of sneer and gloat And basically just give himself away I mean What a prawn What does he do that for Yes, why is Terry Nation so obsessed with the name Tarrant? He's Terry Nation, um, for those of you who don't know, has this kind of Tarrant fetish, I suppose, for want of a better phrase. He um, he uses the name again, uh, literally just changes one one letter of uh, Dev Tarrant's name, to, so he becomes Del Tarrant. Oh, right, yeah, he's this mad screaming lady, excuse me. <laughs> oh, round of applause there. He says tapping the table because I don't have any free hands because I'm using a microphone. But that, that, oh, I mean, that woman should have got her own spin-off series. The, you know, the mad, the mad, wild screamer. I mean, that is, I, I don't know who that was, but um, but yes, um, yeah, there's uh, yeah, Dev Tarrant becomes Dale Tarrant. You've got a Jill Tarrant in Death of the Daleks. There's a Taron in The Keys of Marinus, Doctor Who. Death of the Daleks, of course, Doctor Who as well. And also Taron in Planet of the Daleks. So I don't know why Terry Nation has got this bizarre Tarrant obsession. You know, is, is he friends with Chris Tarrant? Well, more to the point, does Chris Tarrant have any friends? You know, I'd be amazed if he does. Anyway, I'm talking over some very important introductions here. You got um, we finally get to meet uh, Jenna and Villa, uh, both in- integral parts of, uh, of Blake Seven. Michael Keating uh, instantly establishes himself as the Thief Villa. He plays a little bit, a little bit differently in this, which is quite odd because this was recorded after the, the second episode. Spaceball actually went before the cameras in early November. I think the first of November, and this uh, way back, I think it was recorded on the eleventh or the twelfth of November. Um, but he plays a little bit more, kind of with a sinister edge. I think Michael Keating does, which is which is quite interesting. Uh, yes, yeah, Sally there there is Jenna, and again, a, a lot more different to the character she becomes, which I don't I don't think is. Uh, Sally Navet's fault, you know, she becomes a little bit more kind of head prefect as the series goes on, which is which is completely the fault of the writers, really. But here she's, you know, she's the tough, um, streetwise smuggler. Yeah, that's that's good. Yeah, she does that well. Nobody gives a damn about you. And here we have. Um, ooh, what well, looks like Nookie Time between uh <laughs> Tell Varon and and his Mrs. Marger. Uh played by Pippa Steele, who was uh um he used to appear in quite a lot of those uh kind of horror movies of the seventies. Sadly passed away very young at God, oh, forty-four years old, very young. Uh nineteen ninety two awful. But she's good in this. I, I think she's She's a good foil for tell Baron. It's kind of like they, they become more more prominent figures in the action. They, you know, they kind of take on the bulk of the action, while Blake's just sitting there mooching about in prison. They actually do all the detective work, that you know, the uh, the finding out of uh, who's telling the truth, who isn't telling the truth, that sort of thing. And they gradually uncover that the Federation has actually been duping them big style. <laughs> what, is <that? laughs> what is that all about? Nigel Lambert there, um kind of bopping away of this um this plastic um stereo entertainment thing with these groovy glasses on but he's Yeah, maybe may over egging the booging on down bit. However, they have those entertainment things a lot in the, in this season. I'm amazed nobody's actually managed to devise one, although it's probably a little bit clunky by today's standards, you know. Well, I suppose, suppose we have got virtual reality. I don't, I don't know. Anyway, um, yeah, Nigel Lambert would um, would also turn up in Doctor Who. Quite a, quite a lot of these actors turn up in Doctor Who. It's kind of like spot the doctor who goes stuff. Uh he would appear as Hardin in the in the leisure hive. No, uh, learning all, all learning <laughs> the truth about uh where the the kids that supposedly testified against Blake were and they're uh, they're getting to the truth of it. I wonder where nation got all these names: Lee, Sol, Rennell, Decker, Carl, Fen, Painter. I mean, I wonder, I wonder where he got, I wonder where he got the names from. I mean, did he just like sort of um, go through a telephone directory and come up with the uh, the most obscure names that he could find? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, again, you know, you know, very very grim themes. You know, sort of taking these kids and implanting these you know, these uh uh these false scenarios in their brains. and I mean it's uh yeah it's it's pretty horrifying when you think about it. What's the matter? The information is classified. It can't be obtained another priority frequency. Well I need that information. Not possible Yes, yeah, so even uh, even bribery happens in the future as well. As well as, uh, as well as football tabards. Yeah, I, I actually, um, th- this is kind of like um, gonna be the kind of like the spoken alternative because I was gonna start doing uh, the reviews again because this was, Blake Seven was actually my first um, kind of inroad into reviewing science fiction TV. And um, many moons ago, I think it was two thousand and nine, I've been made redundant, and I remember um, just applying, you know, here, there, and everywhere for jobs, just like I'm still doing now. Um, you know, as as a you know as a fledgling freelancer, and I I remember reading the Blake Center, um, the guy uh, Martin, he'd done um, two reviews on uh, Den of Geek. And he reviewed the first two episodes the year before, but he hadn't got round to um, reviewing the rest of the series. So I actually suggested to him but I'd actually quite like to carry on with them. And that was my first experience of doing uh, TV reviews, was reviewing the remaining 50 episodes of Blake Seven. But of course, they didn't really kind of hold up very well by today's standards. I think they're just very amateur, amateurish and uh poorly written so i was gonna kind of revisit them but um I, I thought maybe doing audio commentaries would be uh um a kind of a new way of looking at the old blake seven episodes and of course there'll be a lot more rambling but um but then so my reviews they're rambling as well but uh, but yeah I, I just thought i'd try you know a new way of looking at them so um yeah, I I'm finally getting to review um The Way Back in Space for. But I enjoy I enjoyed doing them. It was uh, it was it was great fun to do actually. It's just a shame that the results were so uh rubbish really. There you go. Yeah. Still not still not really got the knack of um, self publicising very well. So of course Blake, uh, Blake foolishly thinks that he's going to be set free and uh, cleared of all the charges. Uh, but in the world of Blake Seven, it, it it doesn't really happen like that, and that's where I think it differs from Doctor Who big time because the Doctor mm, most generally wins the day. There's a, a couple of exceptions to the rule, you know, like Earthshock, for example, or you know, all Genesis of the Daleks actually. When he when he doesn't when he doesn't win. But more often than not, um, Blake and his friends—they don't win. And you know, this is a classic example of uh, of how the goodies, you know, so called goodies, don't win. I mean, you know, the whole the whole kind of distinction between good and bad, I think, is quite blurred in Blake Seven because. They're not really kind of conventional heroes. You know, I mean, Avon, when he takes over, is a classic anti-hero. He's not, you know, he's not white and white. The nearest that you would get to the white and white hero is Blake. And even then he's, you know, he's, um, he's prepared to commit all these uh, terror acts and um, probably uh, result in a substantial loss of life for, for some innocent people. So even then, you, you've got a, you've got quite a blur between what's good, you know, what's right and what's wrong. So it's it's quite an interesting murky kind of ambiguity going on in Blake Seven, which I think is uh, is part of its appeal. And I think while future episodes will kind of get a little bit kind of camp, for want of a better word, I think on the whole, it you know, there, there's still that kind of gritty tone to it, you know. Um, you know, further further down the line. But yeah, I, th- I think the first season is probably, you know, at its most gritty, I think. Yeah, it is it is quite serious. I mean there's um it's quite atypical the way back because there's, there's not really that many jokes, whereas there, there will be more jokes, I think, included in the future. You know, for example, you know, that the reperti between um the banter between Avon and uh, Villa, you know, constantly taking the mickey out of each other. So there will be that. Um, but overall, this, this is quite uh, quite a serious episode. Quite Dua. Is that how you pronounce it? Dower, Dua? I don't know. Dudley Simpson's music again. Yeah, Dudley Dudley Simpson, of course, doing a great job with the music. That woman squawking orders on the intercom. Yeah, in- interesting bit of sculpture, that. Is, is that a chair, or is that just a bit of um, abstract sculpture in the background there? It, it could be a very uh, uncomfortable chair, I don't know. Doctor yeah, Dr. Havn really needs to clean his ears out, because very clearly does not sound anything like Van um, uh, just just when you think of uh, victories within reach of course, it all comes cruelly crashing down on them and of course in the early days you don't know who is actually going to you know newcomers will not know who's going to be part of the seven you know at this point it could be any anybody in the uh, in the fi- in the final seven you could think that um you know Telvaran and um Marja Could be among the seven. It could have been um Ravella and Richie in the early days. It's constantly teasing you as to who is going to be among the, you know, the the final gang. Nice moment there for uh for Jenner actually, you know, a little bit of vulnerability, how it hasn't seemed real. But yes, I mean the, the uh the final lineup isn't actually established until um uh Time Squad. So it's quite a, you know, it's quite a brave move to actually slow burn it, rather than kind of introduce everybody at once. It's a, it's a brave move, and it's quite a common thing that the uh, the status quo of each series is Well, actually, the status quo of series three and four are not established until a few episodes down the line, because you know there's a certain mess to kind of recover from. You know, there's kind of like a crisis, um, which uh, which the crew. Um, need to sort out and they don't get sorted out until like episodes 2 or 3 further down the line smile, you're on camera those clunky doors which which you could open and uh, apparently uh, you could remove the whole bit of wall and it uh, wouldn't be detected but um, in this case um, it was detected so um, that's that's not really a very good invention it's good location work actually very moody uh, night filming of course we're coming into the final furlong of this episode with the other uh, race against time and it is it is going to be a question of you know will he won't he escape and of course um yes you know, good it's good storytelling from Terry nation I know Terry nation gets he, he can get a little bit of stick for uh um some quite linear storytelling. But as Barry Letspont said, he was a classic page turner. He would always come up with stories that would leave you on the edge of your seat and wanting you to know what was uh, what was going to happen next. And he, he certainly did know how to tell a good old cracking story. And he, he certainly does that with, with Blake Seven. I mean, how on earth he you know managed to write 13 episodes? I really don't know. Um, I, th- I think by the the end of the series, I think he had to have a little bit of help from uh, Chris Boucher, who either rewrote or or uh, filled in some of the gaps with, excuse me, some of the uh, some of the scripts. Now that model work that was filmed quite quite a bit before the other uh, rest of the action that was filmed in, uh, I think it was at Bray Studios in August 1977, and apparently all the model filming a. Ate up um, most of the the budget for the series, um, which um, yeah, it, it, which is mad. Really, you know, you would have thought they uh, they could have spent the money a bit wiser. But you know, having said that, the the model filming is actually very very good, and it, it looks it looks great. Model filming at this time generally look very good. I mean, Star Wars. Came, I think it came out a couple of days before the way back. Actually, I think it, I think it came out on thirtieth of December, nineteen seventy-seven. I could, I could be wrong. Um, but I mean, when they were filming it, it hadn't been released. You know, there was all this big hoo-ha about, um, about it. You know, coming over from America because I think it was released in May seventy-seven. I think I, I don't know. Um, so of course, like Doctor Who and Blake Seven, now had to keep up with. Star Wars, who have come up with these magnificent model shots, Um, but with the modest budgets that Doctor Who and Blake Seven had, how the hell could they do that? So, considering what they had to work with, uh, um, I I think they uh, did did amazingly. Yeah, I don't think Blake's gonna uh, gonna win this time. Bit of a fast swivel chair. Yeah, they're, they're about to settle for the uh, for the what they call the penal planet Cygnus Alpha which we'll come to in a, in a couple of episodes and um, yeah, you certainly would not want to spend the rest of your days there. Yeah, well oh, he's lost. But it's left to Jeremy Wilkin to sneer as uh Varan and Marja have uh, been caught and killed. Yeah, really bleak ending. I've, you know, Blake um, does like its uh, bleak endings. God, I'm amazed that the DVD actually played. Amazingly. Yeah, DVD uh, packages. For God's sake, do something about your packaging. It's uh, it's just not very good. Yeah, Varan and Marja are about to you know, suffer a um, transporter accident, which will presumably... Blow them both up and fry them to the crisp. Oh, horrible. But despite, you know, Blake losing, I mean, there's still, a, you know, that kind of little bit of optimism there when he says he's, he's going to return one day. He's coming back. So that was, that was the way back. Um... A great first episode, very, very atypical of uh, of Blake Seven, um, because, like I said before, a lot of the familiar things are not actually in the episode. But that was still a, that was still very well done, I think. Uh, superb introduction, and of course this wobbly, uh, this wobbly credit background—it actually really wobbles in a minute. <laughs> Maybe the. Uh, May, maybe the the background uh, operator was uh, either asleep or half asleep or uh, or a little bit tipsy. I don't know. But anyway, that was me, uh, John Ben Salia. Thank you for looking it. Thank you for listening in. I keep making that mistake. I'm not looking in. How can you look in for God's sake? Um, but I hope to be uh, hope to have, have, be with you soon. Um, I will be commenting on more Blake's 7 in the future. Uh, many more things. But for now, this is me, John Ben Salia, signing off. Thank you for joining me. Bye for now.